growth doesn't happen unless you go through that discomfort. another episode of Nourish Your Drive. We've had a bit of a break since our last recording in April. May was a bit rough all around, um, but we're very excited to be back recording for our eighth official episode. Um, Today's episode is going to be a bit different than others of the past because I'll be interviewing Solo this time around. Live from London, per usual, um, but Veronica's not joining us today. Um, We're interviewing during very unique times, which seems repetitive to say because we've mentioned COVID-19 so many times, but because we're also experiencing such unrest in the United States, and it's been a very unique experience to see it happening and unfolding um, from another country's news perspective, and also just being so far away from family and friends who are experiencing it in person. I do want to take this moment to remind our listeners, wherever you're listening in the world, that your Black friend, family member, or colleague may not be okay. Your friend who is an ally in the war against racism may not be okay. For those who are abroad, your friend from the States who lives with you in that country that you're living in may not be okay. And I think navigating a response to the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and countless others, the protests and riots that have ensued, the response of our elected officials, while also consequently trying to navigate COVID-19, it can be exhausting. So for many, you've taken up the mantle and tried to educate, provide space for others to feel and process, and be an ally to our Black brothers and sisters and people of color. So in this moment, we encourage you to don't stop now. It's a conversation, whether via social media, over the phone, or in person, that can be triggering and emotional. So we remind you when you may be at odds to do your best to lead with a level head, with empathy, and with the ultimate goal in mind. To our Black brothers and sisters, to our brothers and sisters of color, to Veronica, I stand with you in demanding new policies that change the way our police officers are trained and held accountable for their day-to-day interactions with the citizens of the United States. I stand with you as we look to provide equitable opportunities for our citizens to pursue happiness, including being able to sleep in your own bed without risk of death, to run down the street without risk of death, and to live in peace without risk of undue detainment or death. I stand in solidarity with the movement to end institutionalized racism in the United States and abroad. And as a citizen, I expect better, and I expect our elected officials to do better. So as we segue into our interview today, considering all that's going on at the moment, I can't find it fitting enough that today I have a chance to connect with Rita Mitchens, a recently retired chief diversity officer for a Fortune 250 company and a fellow lover of wine and travel and also a fellow um, colleague of mine. had the pleasure to work under Rita for a number of years, so I'm so excited to have her here. Rita has been so gracious to join us today to share a bit about her experiences, and I'm encouraged that we can provide yet another opportunity for our listeners to meet someone unique who has lived in various locations, traveled to so many places, and how that's impacted how she sees the world. So 
thank you, Rita, for joining us today. It's it's very much appreciated. I feel like it was literally just yesterday that we sat down and had a coffee in the Baglioni Hotel before you went to watch tennis at Wimbledon. Uh, your second love, only to wine. Um, so I can't, <laughs> I can't believe it's in a year. Oh my gosh, Krista, you are so right. Uh, you know, time flies uh, when you're having fun, and uh, when you're not having fun as well, it still flies. Um, but yeah, no, that was a fantastic, uh, fantastic trip uh, for sure. Uh, back to London, and London's definitely one of the cities that I, I do love to visit for many reasons. But uh, obviously, as you said, my uh, my my reason for being there at the time was really uh, to fulfill one of my bucket list items, which was to go personally to see uh, Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon matches and uh, I am a lover of tennis for sure and uh, I'm not sure which you know I would say tennis and wine are you know that kind of go hand in hand I don't know what to say but uh, <laughs> definitely both uh, both passions of mine for sure. So I think you've been trying to check off a number of different things off that bucket list and since you retired you started a new phase of your life in Miami where you currently live with right on the water which is awesome so what took you to Miami when I know New York City is your forever home, it's where you grew up, and, and now you're down south? Yeah, so New York City is definitely my forever home, and, and I can only wish that I could afford to live there uh, the way that I'm living in Miami. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, all kidding aside, uh, certainly one of the reasons that brought me, you know, really back to Miami, as you know, Krista, I lived here uh, in Miami when I was with ADP for almost nine years, and my daughter, you know, kind of grew up here. Um, but, you know, two reasons for me coming back to Miami are there's no doubt I love the weather. I love the fact that I can live, you know, on the water. Uh, it's very affordable compared to New York City, obviously. And now that I'm semi-retired, you know, definitely affordability is, is a factor uh, as I think about all the wonderful things I want to check off my bucket list when it comes to traveling abroad. <laughs> so for sure. So Economics is definitely part of it, but the other part of it, and, and really, honestly, um, I would say just as important for me, is my mom lives here, and my mom's 82, and uh, she, you know she's she's alone. Uh, my dad passed away uh, three years ago, and uh, for me, it's been tough, you know, watching her get older and not being, you know, not being around as much, not being able to help her as much. Uh, not she's not as mobile, obviously, as she used to be. So um, just from a, you know, being a Latina, as you, as you know, you know, family is super important. So for me, being able to be five minutes away from her uh, was another, you know, major factor in me deciding to uh, relocate uh, back to Miami. I can totally understand that. I know that that's been something that, you know, a period in time in my life, maybe about two or three years ago was when I moved here. But, you know, seven years ago, I made a move back to Cincinnati because I wanted to be close to family again. So it's such a, a strong pool in any Latin family. Um, but you grew up in New York. So I did. You know, while your daughter grew up in Miami, you grew up in New York. Um, <laughs> but a native born Cuban from Havana transplanted to the States. Um, and you shared with us that early on travel was a reward for your family for working hard all year. Um, but it seemed like you stayed close to the East Coast driving distance locations. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, my parents obviously came here. I mean, literally, as, as most Cubans, you know, who came from Cuba came that with nothing other than you know, the clothes on their back. So uh, obviously, you know, not having any any financial um, cushion or wherewithal, uh, everything that they did was really about, you know, working and saving. Um, so travel for us was really that one time of year where as a family, we could spend time together. My, my dad worked three jobs, my mom worked two jobs. 
So you can imagine th there wasn't a lot of, I would say, fun family time uh, during the, you know, the typical time of the year that, you know, most families uh, probably get used to spending time together. So for us, really, uh, you know, I would say vacationing that once a year, you know, that one week or two weeks a year um, really became important. And it was, you know, the four of us, me, my brother, my mom and my dad. And obviously, again, affordability being a factor, flying was a bit expensive. So, you know, taking flights places wasn't something that was, uh, you know, in the cards. So we, we drove, you know, everywhere we vacationed. So it was kind of a fun way to explore um, the U.S. And for us, especially for my parents who, you know, never lived here before, um, it was kind of a, you know, again, an accessible way to really experience and learn about uh, the different, you know, places and cultures within the United States. It's amazing, you know, the differences, for example, between the Northeast and the Southeast. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, uh, kind of fascinating. And the same thing, like we visited places that were not just within driving distance, but also, you know, we wanted to learn more about. So, for example, you know, we went to Washington, D.C., we drove to D.C. and we, you know, we went to the Lincoln Memorial and, uh, you know, we went to the White House and took a tour. We, we did all the things that people who obviously are learning about the U.S. and about what we're about, you know, typically do. We went to the Smithsonian, you know, <laughs> Institute. So we did things like that. We, we also love the water uh, as a family. So we took a lot of uh, trips to places like Virginia Beach, uh, you know, the Jersey Shore, um, you know, even, even Boston. So, you know, obviously Boston Harbor, you know, just a lot of places where, you know, Lake George, um, upstate the Catskills, places where you could relax, but you also could experience a little bit more of how, you know, different people from different parts of the region live uh, and, um, and a little bit of the history, right, behind, um, you know, behind the U.S. So, uh, I love you know, that. Yeah. And, you know, one of my favorite trips was actually Williamsburg, Virginia. So, again, a lot of, a lot of history there. Um, you know, interestingly enough, with the times that we're experiencing today, you know, I didn't, I didn't really even think about it back then, but we, you know, we stood out amongst the people that were, you know, at the amusement park, at the local restaurants, at the local, you know, um, hotels and, and so forth. So we, we look different than a lot of those people. And, um, you know, as, as a kid, you don't really think about that. At least I didn't think about that much. Um, but now, now in the context of what's happening, um, some interesting things happened to us when we would stop for gas or when we would go to a, you know, a local, uh, you know, 7-Eleven to pick up, you know, drinks or whatever, you know, the fact that people almost were distrusting of people who were different from them um, really became quite, um, I would say, you know, quite obvious to me as, as I grew older and, and quite, it really saddens me to say that because, um, obviously not everyone is like that, but, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact that when people look different than you uh, and, and speak a different language from you, you know, sometimes that elicits fear and we have to understand that and deal with that. Well, I think it's amazing that your parents kind of led the way by saying, look, we're not going to the same place every year. We're going to go do something different and expose you guys to different parts of this country that we now live in. And, you know, I think back to my own experiences, like we went to Florida, I can't tell you how many times. Sure. And 
it's comfortable, right? And it, there's no risk in that. And everybody loves going to the beach. But, you know, it, we didn't get exposed to so much history until much later in life. And sometimes I think that perspective of seeing how others live, even in the country that you live in, is critical. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, because when I asked my, my parents, like, why did they choose New York? you know, to settle in, like, why not stay in Florida, right? I mean, huge Cuban community in South Florida. And, and when we came from Cuba, we did have that option. I mean, we came through the local, sort of the refugee program. And what they did was they basically asked you where you wanted to live as part of that program. They said, well, you know, you, you're welcome to stay here in Miami, Florida, or, or we'll pay for your one-way ticket to anywhere else in the United, in the United States. And, and my parents chose New York. Part of the reason they did that was they wanted to really um, be part of the American culture, be, be in, you know, more integrated into society and not fall back to what was comfortable. And what was comfortable, obviously, was living in a you know, little Havana um, with, people who <laughs> speak, right, right, with people who speak Spanish and all of that. Um, you know, what, we lived in a predominantly Irish-Italian neighborhood when I you know, first came to New York and Queens. And so that wasn't familiar, but that was important for them to make us feel like we were like everyone else, right? That we- They sounded like amazing pioneers in my opinion. Well, I'm telling you, I didn't truly appreciate it, Krista, until as I said, I, as I was much older and certainly doing the work that I've done and I did for ADP over the last you know, five, six years, um, it really became apparent to me, you know, candidly, how far ahead of their time they were in terms of understanding what inclusion is about. Absolutely. I think as you took that, right, your childhood experience, you went on to graduate and you entered corporate America and, and that travel became more personal as far as how you chose to spend your time, but you also traveled for work. So what was that contrast like? having, you know, your parents choose where you guys were going for a certain extent. And then now you had the power to choose what you wanted to do with it. Yeah, no, it's a huge difference, right? So, you know, obviously for work, you don't really necessarily get to choose where you go, right? You get, right. You get to go where they send you. <laughs> so, um, but, but that- Which have been some cool places I, as well, I, right? Absolutely. I was going to say that that actually was one of the perks. I really viewed that as one of the perks of my job. Uh, because I did get to visit places that I probably would not have, you know, had on my list necessarily, my top 10 list, if you will, uh, to go visit. And, you know, when I think about places like Amsterdam and Prague and India, um, Dubai, like these are all places that if somebody were to say to me, hey, Rita, where do you want to go vacation? Those would not have been places that I would have automatically said. Sure. And, and the fact that through work, I got to visit all of those places and more importantly, to really experience uh, what it's like from people who live there to live there, right? To really experience and understand the culture, um, to try the food, you know, to spend a little bit of time seeing the sights, if you will, and see how different people live, you know, outside of the bubble that we kind of all live in here in the United States. Um, was fascinating and, and incredibly, I would say, incredibly rewarding for me personally uh, to get exposed to all of that. Um, so that was, I would say, a, a perk that, you know, I, I definitely am very grateful that came part with the job. But as far as my own personal travel, um, you know, I, 
as I grew up, I sort of sort of looked at things that I'd like to do. So I love sports. So I like to travel to places where there are, you know, major sporting events, right? Cool. So those are all draws for me. I, I love the water, uh, no doubt about that. I mean, Cuba is an island. I think that that's probably somewhere genetically, you know, programmed, <laughs> you know, in me that I, that I love things that have to do with the ocean and the water. So I definitely am attracted to places that are uh, on the coast and, and by water. Um, and then I'm attracted to places that have um, history and art and unique things, uh, unique foods and, and people. Um, so I love, again, for me, it's all about the experience. And so I love to try new things, um, but things that also align with obviously uh, things that I'm interested in and things that I enjoy. Sure. I, I am laughing when we were looking at your answers, you were like, one of my favorite trips is Spain. And the only reason I laugh about it is because literally Rita, we've had like five other people talk about Spain and why that's their most memorable <laughs> trip. So I don't know if I'm just selecting people who love Spain or <laughs> like, well, you know, I, you know, here's what I like to say, not, not because Spain's are part, you know, they're, they're part of my ancestry, but here's what I like, is like, what is there not to like about Spain? Right. <laughs> I mean, there's sun, there's wine. Exactly. There's, there's sun, there's water, there's wine, there's great food and really friendly people. So. I know. I, you, so you shared your most memorable trip was indeed to Spain, um, specifically Barcelona and the Costa del Sol. Um, two very different regions of Spain, both on the water, though. Yes. Um, so what did you love most about your trip there? You know, I think, um, you know, I, I would say just being in the country where, you know, part of my ancestors are from, I think was special. Um, I, I, I actually love, um, I love the food in Spain. Uh, just literally the food and the wine and the, the whole ambiance. So it's, it's my experience with where I visited and I spent probably, I want to say 12 days to all, all together um, between okay. both of the regions. Um, and the one constant I would say is just the warmth of the people um, was amazing. And, and the, the familiarity, I, I guess, is also, I, you know, you can't kind of ignore that. The fact that I was there and I could speak their language. And I think that made right. a difference, right? I think for all of us who travel, uh, it's always so much of a better experience when you can actually communicate with the people from those areas in their local language. So there's no doubt that that, I'm sure, you know, played a role. But I, I just, like, the places were gorgeous. I mean, I, you know, I'm still trying to recover pictures because I, unfortunately, my iPhone crashed and I lost a lot of my, uh, my pictures, but I'm, I'm still recovering <laughs> them. And, and, and I just keep, I look at kind of, you know, relive that whole experience. And it, it's just amazing how beautiful that country is in terms of, you know, the combination of um, just of, of terrain, of, of you know, yeah. being by the water, having, you know, the mountains, the, you know, the architecture, like all of that, the whole Gaudi influence was, was unbelievable. I mean, talk about talent. I mean, my God. Yeah, I loved Barcelona as yeah. well. La Sagrada Familia. I didn't get a chance to tour it. I know you went in, yes. but I just saw it from the outside and it's amazing. Well, I was very fortunate because I, I think a few years, I don't know if they're still allowing people in, but for, uh, for a while afterwards, they, they stopped allowing tours in. 
Um, yeah, so I think like recently they reopened it, but I didn't get a ticket. So I think for our listeners, if that's something you want to do, it's definitely something it, it is a highlight. Early. I mean, it truly is a highlight. I mean, even if you know nothing about architecture or nothing about art, um, to see the amazing um, structure that was constructed mm. and and the combination of um, you know architecture, I would say, and glass and it's just, it's, it's really, you know, stunning. So I, I would highly, I mean, that's definitely one of the highlights for me. That was definitely one of the highlights of my trip to, uh, to Barcelona. And we'll definitely post that, but we also have your other two. So the, the Baños Romanos. Um, well, who, 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 who doesn't like it? Who doesn't like uh, a nice, <laughs> a nice spa bag? Really? <laughs> It's really cool, though, because, you know, the last time I was in, in the southern part of Spain was like when I was 12. So it's been a while. Um, and I can't remember if I even saw those or not. I'm sure I walked past them. But, you know, you reminded me that, like, maybe it's time to go see the southern part of Spain again and go check out some of these cool historical sites like La Puerta de Elvira and Granada, which, you know, you, you hear about the Islamic occupation, but it, it's a reminder. It, it, it is. And, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, I uh, I wasn't even you know, that wasn't even, again, originally on my list of things to see, but because I was so close, I was in Malaga, and I was uh, so close, I decided to, you know, kind of take a, a, a local tour to see, you know, the places that were, again, relatively nearby where we were, and we, we stayed at, um, at just a, a beautiful, I mean, it's, uh, you know, definitely uh, pricey and, and not in, within everyone's budget, but we stayed at a beautiful place called the Marbella Club, uh, which is right on the beach. Um, and, you know, I would say in the sort of southernmost tip of Costa del Sol, it was just stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning. The Definitely on the bucket oh, list. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, I, I, I would say even just to go there, I mean, just to go there to, even if you don't stay there, just to go there, um, they have a phenomenal restaurant, um, just to go there to eat because they, they actually, um, you can actually eat on the beach. Like they actually serve you nice. on the beach, which is, you know, again, a really cool thing. Um, you know, just beautiful. I mean, we had uh, very relaxing, um, but also just very beautiful and uh, just a wonderful opportunity again to, you know, kind of experience um, their culture, you know, through their eyes. I mean, just uh, very, very fun, very fun. I, I laugh because I think, you and I tend to talk about food every time we get together, but you also always talk about wine. I can still remember this one event we went to, we were going to go have dinner and I was like, Oh, Rita, I can only drink certain red wines. And you're like, just stop. Picking. <laughs> I'm picking the red wine and you're just drinking it. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, from and the reason why I'm going there is because what you really enjoy is these, these wine trips that you've taken, which is like Napa, Bordeaux, France, Tuscany, like, these places that are, you know, the top of the top for foreign wine regions. Um, but that's a huge contrast between like the old world wines and the new world wines. And you're still saying Napa's your favorite. Uh, you know, um, it's, 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 it's funny. Um, you know, it's my favorite for a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I have to tell you that I, I have some, you know, beautiful Bordeaux's and Brunello's that I love. Um, and that, you know, if I could afford to drink more often, I would. <laughs> but some of these, you know, some of these, as you put it, Krista, old world wines, uh, I would tell you are are you know really put a dent in your in your pocketbook. They do. Yeah, they really do. They do. 
they really do. So they're, you know, they're wonderful. I think special occasion wines for me. Like I, you know, again, I, I collect wines and I have uh, some beautiful Bordeaux. I have, my daughter was born in 1995 and that actually was an excellent year for Bordeaux. So I, I purchased, um, you know, a decent amount of different, um, 1995 Bordeaux's, um, you know, in her kind of in her honor and I, and I held them. So I didn't, I, you know, purchased them, didn't open them. And I've, just started to open them, right? So now these wines are, you know, 24, 25 years old, right? Oh my God. Are they amazing? Amaz- I mean, just <laughs> amazing. And and some of them you can't even get today because obviously, you know, back from that vintage, um, it's not like they're making any more from that vintage. So whatever was uh, made and sold, that's it. That's, that's what's available. And so the prices of some of these bottles that I've been holding for, you know, 20 years, um, oh my God, have skyrocketed. So, you know, it's tempting, right? It's tempting to say, huh, maybe I could sell those 12 bottles of 1995 Chateau Pichon Longville Bordeaux, (laughs) Um, you know, or, but I I just, I can't bring myself to do it because I love it. Yeah, it's just so good. I mean, I went to Bordeaux two years ago as part of my MBA program. We went for like a risk assessment, which, you know, selfishly also included trying all these wines at these nice chateaus. And, you know, the wine there is just, it's incredible. And it tastes so different than, you know, having been in Napa and trying wines there. It's just, it's a completely different palette. It, it is. And, you know, it, is. And it could sound a little snooty to say that, but I mean, it's, you can truly tell. Oh, the you can. I mean, and even, even if you... I mean, even again, like you said, even if you don't know that much about wine, there's no denying that they taste very different. I mean, the first of all, you know, when you think about what what winemaking is about, um, it's a combination of so many things. It's art and science. So, so much yep. of it has to do with, you know, the region, the temperature, the soil, um, you know, the types of barrels that they use, you know, how long and where they store them. And so, so many factors are involved in winemaking, right? Um but I, I think one of the, the primary ones is, is the region and the temperature and so forth. So, you know, the region of Bordeaux is very different, for example, in terms of climate than Napa Valley. <laughs> so, so you yep. know, Napa Valley tends to produce, um, you know, very bold. I mean, not that you can't produce, you know, obviously milder, you know, reds, but, but it's known for its boldness. Whereas a Bordeaux... Sure wine is is much um it's more satiny it's much more um balanced if you will and it's just it's so unique right the different ways that people around the world have gone and made wines i mean you i didn't know too much about bordeaux until a couple years ago and then you figure out that everything out of Bordeaux is a blend. And I'm like, who decides that that's a good idea? Because you're so used to like Napa, which is like, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon. This is a Merlot. And it was funny to me to learn that, you know, this late. Well, it's funny. Most people don't realize that even in, um, even in Napa, right. A Cabernet, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, well, it's a Cabernet grape. Well, there are very few wines in Napa Valley that are hundred percent Cabernet grape. Very few. Most of them can call themselves a Cabernet Sauvignon as long as they have 75% of the Cabernet grape, but the rest of it is a blend. So learn something. There you go. Today. So you have like a, you know, you'll, you'll have like a Merlot grape, um, maybe a Petit Syrah grape or a Cabernet Franc grape all mixed in, you know, with this sort of 75% Cabernet grape. 
So therein lies the differences and nuances of red wines, right? Because the reality is that most of those red wines are in fact blends. It's just, it's just about so, the percentage of one grape versus another, but they're all blends for the most part. I think, you know, there's a lot to learn about wine and I know you, you've given us a couple photos from Napa, but if you were to suggest for a first time yeah. going to Napa, it, it can get pretty commercialized, but what would you suggest is like the top three things they should do? I mean, look, I think a, a lot of it depends on why, you know, uh, what, what's your passion around wine or what kinds of wines you like to drink, right? Because there are wineries that are more oriented towards white wines. And then there are wineries that are more oriented towards red wines. And then, sure. and then it's about, well, do you want to go to a winery that is easy to find in your local, you know, wine shop? Or do you want to explore smaller production wineries that you can really only purchase if you're on their mailing list? <laughs> right? So I think it, it really begs the question for anyone you know, doing a first time trip to Napa is to really think about, you know, what do you want to experience? Right. Do, do you simply just want to go and see, you know, learn a little bit about wines, see some beautiful, you know, beautiful vineyards. Right. Um, and and taste wines that are easy to find once you leave Napa Valley? Or do you want to experience something really different and, and you know, support and explore small production wineries that aren't really that well known, but make phenomenal wines, right? Yep. So, you know, for me, you know, again, being like loving wine and, and having tried and done a lot of wine tastings, you know, throughout my life, um, I would say, you know, the typical places like Sterling Vineyard, the photo that I sent you, you know, Sterling Vineyards, if you want to just go see beautiful vineyard, a beautiful vineyard and, and get the, the sort of feel of Napa Valley, uh, Sterling Vineyards has one of the best um, tours and, and the best views because they're on the sort of... I love that gondola. Uh, yes, gondola fantastic. So cool. On the upper end of Rutherford. And, and you can just really see kind of Napa Valley in its splendor. That's great. And Sterling, you know, is a very affordable, um, easy to drink, easy to find wine. So that's one experience. Or you can go to a, you know, small production vineyard like Salani or like Skipstone, which are also in Napa Valley. And most people wouldn't have heard of these, but they make, oh my gosh, phenomenal, rich, rich wines. Again, small production. Um, I actually met with the winemaker. Like it's very rare that you can actually meet with the winemaker when you go to some of these bigger wineries. But when you go to some of the smaller yeah. ones, I mean, the tour, first of all, was personal, number one. Secondly, um, you get to talk to the person who actually blends and makes the wine, which is phenomenal. And it's just a very different experience. And not to mention, you know, you're supporting obviously those local winemakers uh, and, and drinking some really exceptional wine to go along with that. So I'm, I'm a fan of, as, as you can tell by my response, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of, you know, really exploring some of the smaller vineyards, really doing your homework about the kinds of wines you'd like to drink and then finding some of the really um, smaller vineyards that, you know, again, are, are in that main Napa, you know, road, if you will, but 
kind of off, sure. off, the, off the road or off the you know, beaten path, if you will. A little bit of off-piste. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> As we, you know, I love talking about the wines. I know this could probably be another episode. We'll probably pick it up another time. But as we wrap up today, and in light of the acute focus on race relations, yeah. you know, you mentioned, you're like, I'm a Latina. My family's from Cuba. I wondered if we might get your thoughts on how you feel about how people of color, particularly the Black community, are or are not portrayed in the world of travel. And if you feel like your experiences, you mentioned a little bit going back retrospectively, but do you think that's changed in your experience now? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, for, the first thing I want to say is um, my heart goes out, obviously, to the Black community, all my you know colleagues and, and friends and peers in that community who are right now in a lot of pain, uh, and rightfully so, uh, based on what's happening uh, in this country. And uh, it, it's just unfortunate that... Um, you know, we and they have been living with this, you know, really institutional racism that exists for a long, long time. And it's taken us to the point where we, we, we lost again, yet another, you know, another slew of innocent, you know, black lives uh, to, to bring us to this brink, if you will, of we, we finally need to do something about it. So, you know, my feeling on all of this is that, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, black people are, at least in advertising that I've seen, rarely featured in travel. I mean, mm. if you think about, if you think about yep. sort of the, the, the everyday advertising that most, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, hotels or, 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 or beaches or countries or, you know, whoever is advertising there, unless, the, unless it's Jamaica, I mean, you rarely ever see <laughs> the diversity of people enjoying things like travel. So I would say, I, I would say it's we so have true. a lot of work to do. I think when it comes to just even portraying uh, a much more diverse uh, community, when it comes to these kinds of experiences we're talking about. So that would be my, my first sort of thing. My second uh, sort of observation is I'm hoping that this is a bit of an awakening for all of us in terms of really forcing us to think what can we individually do to ensure that this doesn't continue to happen, that we don't continue to simply accept what has been the case for 400 years. So I, I think that all of that I, I, you know, is to say, all of us uh, have an individual responsibility, I think, to be educated, to get educated, to understand where is this coming from? Why is this happening? And then to take really you know, concrete steps to changing it. And one of the first things we can do in addition to getting educated about the problem, which, which by the way, I think a lot of people are not, um, I think if you start to really look at the statistics, really look at the studies that have been done around, uh, you know, the failures of law enforcement and, 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 and sort of the institutional issues and challenges that are being raised about by the Black Lives Matter movement, if you really understand and really study those things, you, you really begin to see a picture that is not so, you know, positive about what's happening. And, and then and it isn't just a few. So I, you know, I hear a lot of people talk, well, it's just a few, a few people, a few bad apples. 
Well, no, it's not a few bad apples. When you look at the statistics, it's a lot more than a few. So I would say getting educated is one of the first steps that we can make. The second is to look at our own social networks and look at our own friends network and, and see how diverse is that network? Do we, do we have a, a network and a social uh, you know, sort of fabric that really reflects the world that we live in? And I would, I would argue that a lot of people, when they look at who are their you know, sort of go-to people, if you will, in their network, they tend to look like them. So mm. diversifying your social network in an intentional way, I think is another thing, another simple thing that we can do to take some action, some positive action. Um, I would say the third thing that we can do to take some positive action is to call it when we see it. I, I wrote a, a recent blog on LinkedIn about some of these things that we're talking about and some of the things that we, we must do to really begin to, you know, change this trajectory. And, and so being silent is no longer an option. Being silent is the same thing as being complicit. You know, when you look at those cops that stood by while the other one, you know, had his knee on this poor man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, uh, and they did nothing to stop it, that silence is complicit, is complicity. So I think we have a responsibility to, to be aware and to call out stereotypes and, and people who use you know, inappropriate language to refer to people of color as an example, to call them out on it and not, not, and not accept Absolutely. that. You know? So those are some of the thoughts that I have. I just think that we, we all need to do more um, with what we have to try to change this. And, and if you're living in the United States, um, voting is one of those things that we can do to change what's happening. Putting pressure on our elected officials to put forth reforms that actually make a difference. You know, that's also something we can do here. So, uh, you know, long-winded way of saying uh, there's actually a lot that each of us can do to make a difference. I completely agree with you. And, and I you know, recently got online on Rock the Vote and was like, how do I register for my absentee ballot? And Ohio responded immediately and was like, we got your online thing. Get ready to go. We'll send this 46 days before it's due. And I'm like, great, perfect. And that's something that someone can do immediately to feel like they're making an impact. But I think in listening to what you're sharing here, you know, I take away the fact that your own personal board of directors, the people around you, your friends, the people that influence you should be very diverse and they shouldn't agree with you all the time because if not, you don't grow. And I think the other thing that you mentioned just around, you know, sharing that you're diversifying your own perspectives, it comes from what you shared with us today. Your parents ensured that you went and saw different things that you weren't used to. You saw many different ways and walks of life. They encouraged you to expand and grow and you continue to do that as a person and you continue to to do that with your daughter. And I think if we can all try to, you know, develop ourselves beyond our own comfort zone, we then are more open to people who are different than us. And, and that also translates when we're out traveling to, you know, spend a lot of time talking with the local people that continues to be a theme. And every guest that we have on the podcast is go out and, and, and meet and talk to people who are different than you. Um, so 
Rita, you know, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? If if not, you know, we appreciate the time. Well, Krista, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Certainly enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. And, you know, I, listen, what I would say is, as final thoughts is, um, you know, we, we just cannot stand by and accept anything less than positive change. And I think all of us, um, again, as I said before, have it within us to, to make that change. And I think the change starts at home. I mean, you talked about my parents and the fact that they were you know, thoughtful enough to expose me to different things. And I would say having conversations about race is difficult. It's emotional, it's difficult, it's, it's uncomfortable. But, and so that would be my last, I would say, um, you know, parting thought is look in your own homes, look at your own families, look at your own circle of friends, make sure you're having these conversations because that's step one in driving the change. Growth doesn't happen unless you go through that discomfort. Thank you, Rita. As always, it's a gift and a pleasure and appreciated to have the opportunity to speak with you. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode and for joining us as we discuss some amazing travel experiences, wine, Spain, um, and experiences that are beyond the destination. You can, as always, find the list of the top three locations shared by Rita on our website, so we'll share that information for Spain as well as the wineries we discuss. And as a reminder, if you do anything in this moment in time, do remember to get out there and register to vote. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more information about our guest speakers, their favorite locations, or the Nourish Your Drive project, please visit nourishyourdrive.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your network and don't forget to subscribe on whichever platform you're listening. And please be sure to let us know what you think by leaving us a review. If you have any questions for our guests or requests for specific locations, please drop us a note at nourishyourdrive at gmail.com. Until next time, Continue to explore experiences beyond the destination.